experts in engineering and manufacturing solutions that meet the industry's water needs. This is The Intake, a podcast hosted by Atlas SSI. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Intake, an Atlas SSI podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We appreciate you listening along to some larger industry thought leadership here from the water treatment and larger facility management industry as well. And before we dig into the main core topic for the conversation today, which is going to be intersecting some high-level trends with actionable strategies and tips for our industrial audience, I want to make sure that you have all the Atlas SSI content you need to feel fully caught up and understand our place in the industry. So make sure you're heading to our website site atlassssi.com. Again, that's atlas-ssi.com. There you'll find more information about our solutions and services, as well as more episodes of our podcast and other pieces of thought leadership like videos, articles, blogs, and more. You can also subscribe to The Intake on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations plus notifications when we drop new ones. All right, let's jump in. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be painting a high-level picture of one of the most pressing phenomena in our industry today. And we're going to be breaking down the impacts of climate change on water intake systems. So like our audience will know, uh, thermal power generators in large industrial facilities require a continuous flow of water for cooling and for more generally facility operations. However, due to warming ocean temperatures and nutrient pollution and other kinds of disruptions to water sources, that source water quality is rapidly changing and becoming more unpredictable. And what this is resulting in is increased water intake system blockages and in general, operating challenges across the board. So with our discussion today, we're going to better understand the environmental changes that are impacting water intake systems today. We're going to break down the role of long-term data modeling to help ensure a continuous flow of water to facilities. And we're going to give you, our audience, some steps for permitted water intake users to better manage these changing source water conditions. So I'm pleased to welcome our two thought leaders for the discussion today. First up, we're joined by Tim Hogan. He's principal and owner of TWB Environmental Research and Consulting. Tim, how are you doing today? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate you joining us on the podcast. And for a little context for our audience, TWB is a small and accessible consultancy that offers environmental guidance to industries to uh, withdraw and discharge seawater. Uh, permitting of such facilities is a very complex process, and TWB is your partner to help walk you through that permitting, help understand some of the regulatory questions that are needed to formulate an effective compliance strategy. So Tim, I'm looking forward to pulling from that perspective for our conversation today. For our second guest, we're joined by Mr. Ford Wall. He's Vice President of Sales at Atlas SSI. Ford, great to have you on. How are you? 
Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. Yeah, looking forward to intersecting y'all's perspectives. And just in case uh, a listener is tuning in, it's their first touch point with Atlas SSI. Here's our quick pitch, right? Atlas SSI is the largest full-service traveling water screen and bulk material handling equipment manufacturer in North America. And the company offers the industry's uh, most comprehensive engineering and manufacturing capabilities for things like new equipment, rebuilds, replacement parts, and more importantly, to build that long-term relationship, ongoing service as well. So we've got Ford, we've got Tim on the line. Let's go ahead and jump in now and better connect the dots between climate change, the impact on source water, and in turn, some of the operation challenges this is creating for water intake facilities and operations. So Tim, I want to start with you here since um, you are, you know, this is your first time on the podcast with us, but you have an interesting background that bridges the gap between regulatory, engineering, hydraulic, and biological disciplines, which all really coalesce for our topic today. So I'm curious how you place importance on that intersection of knowledge, right? Why does this feel important for your role? And why does it feel important more generally to have a holistic view of those various aspects, the tech aspect, the regulatory, the scientific aspect when dealing with water intake systems and the impacts of a changing climate? Yeah, you bet. Thank you. So you're right. I I have quite a varied background. You know, I'm technically a fish biologist trained that way. So my first exposure to um, work in the intake screening field was related to compliance um, with 316B regulations, which is a a section of EPA's Clean Water Act um, that dictates how an intake must be designed and operated to minimize impact to aquatic life. So in in that role, I've had a lot of exposure to what makes an intake work. How do you select the right technology? How do you make sure that it'll function over time? And then more importantly, um, in relation to the EPA regulations, how can you guarantee that fish will survive the process of being collected and returned from such technologies? Uh, Over the years, you know, that that relies on a number of different disciplines to try to identify the best technologies and how best to operate them. Um, As you mentioned, the regulatory piece is is probably the biggest in my mind. Uh, You have to pick something that that at a minimum um, ascribes to meet all of those regulatory thresholds. But then from an engineering perspective, you know, and I try to think about two groups at, at a client facility. One are the folks who want to make sure that what they put in uh, complies with the regulation. And then you have the folks who need to operate it on a daily basis. So you have to keep both of those groups happy. And when you talk to an engineer or operator, their questions are, are less likely to be about how well will a fish survive the collection process, but more about, you know, what does it mean for maintenance of this intake intake screening equipment? You know, whereas previously you may only need to rotate a traveling water screen um, a few times per shift, the regulations may dictate that you're now continuously operating a screen, and that has some implications in terms of maintenance. So I think I've given you a long-winded answer to your question, but I think the point here is that identifying the right technologies and then operating them efficiently is a blend of a number of different disciplines. You know, you, there's the regulatory piece, the hydraulic modeling piece, um, and then the engineering aspect to make sure that what you put in lasts for a lifetime of first facility. 
Now, to ground some of that expertise around uh, work that you're more actively doing, I'm curious if you can clue us into some of the work I know you're doing with the EPRI, the Electric Power Research Institute. Um, I know that just generally you're working with nuclear power facilities to help ensure continuous flows of water, analyzing their processes, their technologies, and getting Again, that scientific layer, too, of how source water is impacting their operations. I'm curious uh, how you see this work being useful for not only our conversation today, but just more generally the needs of the industry and whether that work applies to other large water intake system operators, not just in the nuclear space. You know, any large industrial water user that draws from a natural source, whether it be the ocean, a lake or a river, has to be able to manage environmental risk. And, and sort of the topic of today's podcast is how are we perceiving any change in terms of environmental risk? And we see over the long term, when you focus on 10, 20 years down the road, things change. And if you've designed an intake to properly manage um, one piece of debris or one specific species, that might not be the same species that's challenging you in years to come. So we see in the press, um, you know, over the last five to 10 years, an increase in the number of incidents where intakes become blocked. And I think those that get the most publicity are, are the big nuclear plants, because when a, a plant like that goes um, offline or is just derated, it has a significant impact on the supply of power. So being able to better predict when those events are likely to occur, occur has been a major thrust of the industrial water user industry, not, not solely specific to nuclear, but other thermal facilities, as well as hydropower or seawater desalination, really anyone using water for any process downstream. So, you know, there, there's been an increased, um, an increased prevalence of these intake blockage events. And this has been one of the main focuses uh, of the work that I've been involved in with, with EPRI, the Electric Power Research Institute, where we, we are um, managing a subset of EPRI members who share this concern, and it's, it's sort of formed into what we call an interest group. And this interest group is really a forum for the members to share personal experience on a facility-to-facility -facility basis. So Everyone can learn from each other's successes and failures. You know, the failures sometimes are more important than the successes to understand what doesn't work before you try to reinvent the wheel on something that may not work. Uh, so the work there over the last three or four years has really been focused pretty heavily on how to minimize the impacts associated with intake blockage events that seem to become more prevalent. Things like jellyfish, shrimp, salps, seaweed. Um, and there's there's no dearth of that information in the in the media nowadays. So our research is sort of focused on how can you best predict predict when those events may happen, and how can you ensure that your intake equipment will be ready to manage those challenge events when those do occur. All right, Ford. I want to bring you into the conversation here as well, and feel free between the two of you to, uh, you know, if you want to take on one of these each or just kind of break down together. Uh, I want to paint that picture now for our audience of some of the common environmental changes that we're seeing because of warming ocean temperatures. And more importantly, what I want to do is paint that picture for our audience of how these environmental changes are 
impacting intake systems, where along the intake system they're causing challenges, and how that domino affects into larger issues for these facilities. So what I'm going to do is break down kind of one by one some of these various challenges, and I'd like to get y'all's thoughts on the why and the cause and effect, right? So let's start with harmful and invasive algae. This is something that the industry uh, deals with on a regular basis, but I'm curious if you can break down whether this has been accelerated lately because of climate change trends or just where this is most acutely felt today for intake operators. I think maybe the, the best way to answer this question or, or address the topic is to give an example. So let's take a, a hypothetical nuclear power plant that's drawing water from a coastal zone. And what we see is not necessarily uh, resulting specifically from climate change, but Maybe there's a farming practice in that coastal area where farmers are putting a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus in the form of fertilizer into the ground. And a lot of that may end up in that coastal area if it's not absorbed by whatever crop. You know, you get a more frequent storm event. A lot of that fertilizer ends up in rivers. The rivers end up discharging to the ocean. And those nutrients are available to promote the growth of anything that's able to assimilate them. So we do see more of a prevalence of harmful algal blooms. And when we do call them harmful algal blooms, we're, we're referring not just to microalgae, which is what people think about, you know, a green tint to the water, but this is also macroalgae. You know, they're absorbing those nutrients. They become, you know, they, they increase in biomass, biomass, and then at the end of their life cycle, they'll senesce and be released from whatever's holding them to, uh, to the rocks or the shoreline. And those all end up at uh, wherever the current goes. You know, these are passively floating particles. And if there's a draw towards an intake, that debris can end up there. So that, that's just sort of one example of, of how, you know, it's more of a more of a human impact, an anthropogenic impact that could be causing a challenge. But then we do see other other events such as jellyfish swarms, which are also loosely tied to coastal development. Um, more infrastructure in the water means more substrate from which organisms uh, like jellyfish can produce more. And then you end up with a number of jellyfish mm. and those also following passive like passive particles into an intake. And some also have uh, sufficient swimming capacity to find their way wherever they like. Those become more prevalent issues. Um, so those are just a couple of examples that I can throw out there. For do you have anything to add to those? Yeah, yeah. One that maybe comes to mind that you you may can speak to um, would be years ago when the uh, when the zebra mussels invaded the Great Lakes. They they caused a lot of problems. But one of the things they did because their mussels they cleaned the water up and everybody loved. All of a sudden, the Great Lakes were clear and beautiful. Well, then the sun shone down the water and the algae grew because the water was now clear and the algae blooms just let go and they would just inundate the power plant. So so do you recall that, um, uh, Tim, and, and some of the issues with some of the big algae? And, and keep in mind, when we're talking about algae, sometimes you think a little smooth you know, piles of green stuff. We're talking just just gobs and, and, and tons of algae that looks like long grass. So, Tim, speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there there have been a number of cases, you know, one one comes to mind in Scotland where there was a, a nuclear power plant that just recently within the last few months has 
has experienced an algal ingress event. You know, a storm rips up algae that's growing more more abundantly in the coastal area, and that ends up at an intake. Similarly, there are freshwater algae at plants on the Great Lakes, uh, again, mostly contributed to by eutrophication, you know, adding fertilizer that ends up in the, uh, in the runoff, and that ends up stimulating the growth of, of uh, freshwater algae. So I'll give, I'll give one other example too, to tie this a little more closely to, to the issue of how climate change can be a potential factor that's, that's worth tracking as your facility ages. You know, here, here's an example where a facility may have been designed where the dominant organism that acted as a debris agent was a green alga. And if you picture something for it, like what you had mentioned, maybe it looks like a grass. It's very easy to picture. And those are important details about what does that debris item look like in terms of how we would fit an intake with the right cleaning equipment to remove that target debris item. You know, you may choose a different type of mesh, a smooth text mesh versus something else that's a flat plate. And then over time, as temperatures in that source water body change, maybe the composition of the debris agents is skewing a little farther from that grass type to now you're you're looking at maybe a red alga that's a a single sheet like a sheet of paper but totally different in terms of how it engages with the screening structure and then you find out well the type of screening mesh that we've selected and the spray wash pressure and spray wash orientation may no longer be effective for managing that debris type so this is how we, we see that things will slowly creep over time in terms of environmental change. And unless you're paying attention and monitoring data like water temperature, nutrient load, you may be a little late or behind the curve to notice that there's a change in the composition of what you thought your principal debris agents were to what they're more likely to become. And that has an effect on how you address cleaning that debris off of an intake structure. Now, another trend is, I guess, some of the natural or unnatural uh, pollution that we see in waters and how that is also leading to some biological biofouling. Uh, sometimes it does lead to major algae blooms. Can you connect the dots there with how you're seeing water pollution factor into some of this unpredictability in uh, water source quality? Yeah, I guess the, the unpredictability in water source quality that, you know, as we can tie it to invasive species, um, you know, an example may be invasive um, zebra mussels or, or quagga mussels, where we've seen the introduction of those unintentionally throughout the Great Lakes. And now they, they spread through river systems as well. And they're extremely invasive and very difficult to eradicate once they've established themselves. So as this organism um, begins to populate an area, these are also filter feeding mollusks. So they're taking, um, they're taking phytoplankton out of the water. So now water clarity increases and you have better sunlight penetration. And now you've created conditions where areas may be um, conducive to growing algae that weren't before because the water clarity has increased. So it's, it's an ecological change that is very difficult to predict because there are so many steps 
in terms of ecosystem changes, you know, an invasive species changes water quality, which has an effect, on, an indirect effect on habitat suitability for another type of organism that could also affect how your intake is operated. So it gets complicated. You know, this is what I always tell folks is biology is complicated, but when you talk about multiple organisms in terms of an ecosystem or ecological approach, it, it gets even more complicated. So the question is, how do you best monitor those bits of information that are most relevant to predicting those types of changes? Things like water quality um, and being being mindful of what ends up on your intake screen are, are two of the things that, that we stress a focus on. I think the only other one I want to toss y'all's way because you did a good job of uh, intersecting jellyfish blooms is salp swarms. Um, sometimes salps get kind of caught up in the same, I guess, general complaints as, you know, the issues that jellyfish bring, though they are a different kind of organism and they do, uh, you know, introduce their own challenges. So can you break down how salp swarms are influencing this larger trend of unpredictability in water source quality? What are y'all's thoughts? Well, I think this is just, this is a quick one. Um, you know, salps sort of fall in that same basket as other gelatinous zooplankton that can be problematic at an intake. So, you know, they're, they're treated very much the same way as jellyfish would be treated as, a, as an intake threat. Um, they're different biologically because these are individual organisms that, that form colonial aggregations. So whereas you may have jellyfish that are impacting a screen um, collection device individually, in the cases of salvia, you usually get a big, massive gelatinous mess, and, and it has posed a risk at, um, at a couple of nuclear power plants on the California coast. And, you know, it's, it's very, it makes for a very difficult day when those organisms are, are impacting a screen. And it's usually a sort of a scramble to make sure that you can keep screens operating and pumps running. So it's, it's typically an emergency situation where fire hoses might be deployed to try to push things off the surface. Um, temporary nets might be thrown in the water to try to collect and remove those organisms. But it's, it's difficult to predict when those types of events will happen. All right. Thank you to the both of you for that breakdown on some of those uh, common environmental challenges that are impacting intake systems today. Ford, I'm going to toss a question your way now. Are you seeing an increase in seawater changes that are also impacting water intake system operations? Uh, and if so, can you share any stories or experiences from the ground that uh, can help validate your perspective here? Yeah, there's a there's a couple that come to mind, but but one specific is um, over the past few years on the east coast of Florida, there's a there's a, a seaweed that's just slamming the east coast called sargasm. Um, it, it's not uncommon to the waters in, in terms of its uh, being there, but the amounts that are there now are just it, it's just unbelievable. Um, and this this sargasm is a, a free floating brown seaweed that um, it grows in, in some, uh, it used to grow in a specific area for trivia people. It was actually the area of the Bermuda Triangle, um, but, it's, but it stayed there and it was a, a nursery grounds for sea life for, and, um, and a haven for, for sea life from, from uh, the food source and the, and the uh, spawning and that kind of thing. But in 2011, this stuff moved into the Caribbean 
and then started working its way up the East Coast, went to the Keys. And since 2011, it, it's, a, it's an event now. And for those of there may be some people that may be scheduled a vacation on the East Coast of Florida to go see the beautiful white beaches. And if you go the wrong time of the year, you get there. It's beautiful white uh, brown piles of stinky sargasm seaweed. And you can't you can't really fathom the extent of how much is there until you go and see it. Um, and, and I've done so. And so, uh, but the power plants really have to, to get ready for it. And, and they, cause it just, when it comes and it, it can start as early as maybe May and runs through the summer months on into the fall. And it's really, it, it really causes problems from the bar racks to the screens, then on to the surf water pumps. And so it, it's a real problem that the power plants have to, as Tim said, if you wait till the event gets to your plant, it's too late. You have to plan ahead. So uh, that that's one of the biggest ones that comes that comes to mind because we've we've worked over the last few years to to help the power plants remove some of that stuff before it causes some problems. Yeah, and if I could piggyback on that, you know, uh, Ford, you, you touched on one of the most important things is you know what what's available in terms of forecasting technologies to predict when those events might happen. And, and you'd think in this day and age with satellites and with drone technology and oceanographic instrumentation, it should be possible to predict with enough warning when those events may occur to properly prepare an intake to, to maybe uh, derate itself before it has to be shut off completely, you know, sort of minimize the damage. And there's a lot of active research in that area, but it's, it's not an uncomplicated thing. If you think about a forecasting technology the same way the National Weather Service might, there's a lot of data streams that have to be fed into some sort of processing black box. Then that black box has to spit out a warning in enough time with enough certainty that a, a nuclear power plant operator can feel comfortable that, yes, I need to shut these pumps down at an exorbitant cost in terms of power loss but it would be at the cost of saving a complete outage. So there's, there's a lot of active research in that area. And I think there's some, some nice nuts to crack there for folks who are, are innovators and entrepreneurs that can put those sort of systems together. Hmm. And, and if I can, can I add one more, one more piece sure. on, on the, the question about seawater quality? So one thing we have noticed for um, a couple of facilities that are in estuary locations, where they have selected intake screening materials that are best suited to the water quality in that area, maybe seeing a change in that water quality in terms of salinity or other chemical content, where the original materials that were selected may not, may not be the best materials for the life of the plant. And they start to see corrosion because of the types of steels that are used. And, and a lot of that has to be put into you know, how, how do you expect that facility to manage future risk on things like material selection, where a simple 316 stainless may be appropriate now, but if you are an estuarine facility where, you know, you're not getting a whole lot of freshwater input due to droughts and you get a little bit more salinity coming upstream with the salt wedge, do you think that material is still the best one for that location? Similarly with temperature, you know, corrosion rates change quite a bit as temperature changes. So they're all sort of design considerations that should be taken into account um, if you're in the process of building an intake or if you're thinking about making modification or retrofit. 
10, 15 years ago, we ran across this uh, microbial induced corrosion that, that it, it, it's caused by actually the, the uh, marine life as it attaches to the screens and it, and it happens and it almost looks like a termite on steel, but it just eats the steel away. But we only saw it on the East Coast, like in the New England states, you know, from from, say, maybe Delaware on up. But now we're hearing it in Florida. So obviously, Tim, the, the changes are, are moving around. So are you seeing the same thing that, that, that that's a that, that's exactly right. Yeah. Southern southeastern U.S. has has been challenged with these sort of issues recently where materials that that should have withstood this the test of time. Um, are now being exposed to water quality conditions that were not necessarily expected. And they're, they're seeing something different where, you know, you don't want to see deeply pitted <laughs> corrosion on support members for, for large screens. And that is the case for some, uh, for some facility operators. So Tim, let me, let me ask a question on that. Facilities now that they've reduced water flow a lot to hit the half a foot per second, that where the flows used to be, you know, two, three feet per second, and now they're reduced. Do you think that's creating a better environment for this corrosion and thing? Is that, has that ever been talked about? It has. In fact, that's an area of research that um, EPRI dabbled in, I would say roughly you know, five to 10 years ago. There, there was a facility on the East Coast that it had experienced a catastrophic failure of one of their travel water screens and during the autopsy, identified microbial-induced corrosion as a potential culprit for um, that screen succumbing under pressure. And, and one of the potential contributors are either by, either by reducing flow to hit that half foot per second criterion or by expanding your intake surface area to hit it, regardless of how you get there, a lower flow velocity is likely to be a better living environment for those bacteria that are associated with microbial induced corrosion. So it's a it's a kind of a bummer, you know, because that that criterion is developed specifically as an an organism survival means. You know, this is the best way to protect fish is to provide them with low velocities, but there's an unintended consequence there where you're saving one organism, but you're promoting the growth, growth of a bacteria that can have a detrimental effect on the structure itself. Tim, I want to briefly highlight some more work you're doing before we get into uh, some of the strategies for our listeners today. But I know you've been working on long-term modeling of some of the changes happening in oceans near water intake systems. And I'm more curious on the data side here. How are you actually collecting the data around these challenges to turn that into actionable analysis and then strategies and uh you know what trends are revealing themselves in the data yeah great question and i guess i should be clear i'm not trending the data myself um, sure. but but i think what's important to point out and, and let me take a step back here if i can that there are there are industry-wide reports um, that are produced by the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations. The acronym is INPO. And they produce reports called Significant Operating Experience Reports. And these are intended to be industry-wide for nuclear facilities for everyone to learn from each other's uh, mistakes and successes. And there was one of these SOER reports released in 2007 
which sort of outlines a number of case studies where a power plant had been blocked at the intake and the nuclear plant had to react somehow. Those reports provide information on events that have happened, and then they end with recommendations. And in that, in that specific report focused on intake blockages, there were five recommendations. Four of them are fairly concrete. You know, it's, is your staff properly trained? Maybe you want to update the training. Um, you know, you should think about identifying forecasting technologies to help you predict. But one of the most challenging of those five recommendations is keeping an eye towards long-term monitoring data. And truthfully, that report is out from 2007. And I think folks still look back at it and say, this is the piece, the one recommendation we have a real hard time with. Because if you're an operator, you're typically concerned with day-to-day. You know, is my intake running? Is there an issue coming up today, tomorrow, maybe next week? But it's very rare to have a member of the operations staff that's dedicated to identifying a stream of long-term data. You know, and there are data streams available. A lot of them are from, you know, government buoys from National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, National Weather Service, all publicly available, where you can collect data on things like uh, water temperature. And having that data at your hands can send out an alarm when it says, hey, it's, you know, it's increased by X tenths of a degree. And you may start considering about whether your design basis, which is, which is formulated with the concept that here's the temperature we're always going to have. But now you've got a nuclear power plant that's gotten a couple of relicenses through and it's operating for 60, 70 years. Well, that temperature that you originally designed for may now be quite different. So the point being, there, there are a number of recommendations that are all very clear. Um, some are easier to implement than others. But the one I think the nuclear industry's had a real challenge with is identifying those long-term data trends and how to assimilate that information into either a retrofit or changing the way you operate a facility. All right, y'all. Thank you for that context, Tim. Uh, now what I want to do is, again, start to take some of these high-level trends we've been breaking down and turn them into some more actionable strategies for our listeners today. So let's start by, I guess, giving some insight on how to be proactive on the end user's part. Is there any way that you uh, you know, recommend or that you'd say is most effective uh, to tell if a blockage or a failure is more likely to occur or if it's in the process of happening? Basically, what is your go-to methodology for proactive oversight to make sure that these blockages or failures don't get too far along, right? That they're caught before they cause a real problem. And that's a good, that's a great question in that there's kind of two answers. There's, there's the very localized answer at the intake, um, things that you can do, like, like Tim said earlier, sometime if you wait till that moment to prepare for it, it's too late, but there are some certainly automation helps you uh, in front of the bar racks in, in the sequence throughout the intake to the pumps to look at the differential to see what's going on as it builds up, do some different things. And then, and, and, and then on the maintenance side of that is it's be similar if somebody said, okay, in a week, they're projecting a hurricane to hit, you're going to do some certain things to prepare for your equipment for that. And so um, screens used to go, as Tim said, they, they ran, 
15, 20 minutes a day. Now they run continuously. So you can no longer maintain them every three or four months. It's the weekly processes you have to do, monthly processes that you have to follow to, to keep those prepared because you, you you never know. And then on a larger scale, a lot of plants, there there are some there is some data out there that you that for, for instance the sargasm blooms. Um, the University of South Florida puts out some data um, along with NASA. They they I guess they use satellite imagery to to report where that sargasm is. Now the currents in the ocean continuously change. Certain storm events make them go certain places, but there is some predictability there. So the plants follow those uh, on a daily basis to try to get prepared. Um, Tim mentioned uh, out, uh, jellyfish. I know in the, I think it's the North Sea and some, in some other areas, they're using drones to follow the blooms to try to predict when they happen. So there's kind of a twofold answer there. There's some local stuff that you can do mechanically to get to be prepared. And then on the bigger picture, the plants are starting to realize that we need to follow this data because it's not a matter of if it's coming, it's when it's coming. And so if you can predict that when, then you can be prepared for it. So, yeah, I, I think you nailed that. That that's exactly right. There, there are the, the one piece I'll add though is, you know, there's a perspective from the technology side. Are there technologies available to forecast, and are there technologies available to automate screen operation? But I think the other piece of the puzzle that we try to stress as well is is are your personnel trained properly to identify a risk when it's about to happen? Or are they trained in an emergency procedure if you're in the middle of a, a jellyfish inundation event? So I think two of those are critical. The, the technology piece is obvious. You know, that's continually improving every day. And there's always a technology solution in terms of forecasting or, or screen automation. But there's almost no, no solid replacement for having trained personnel who can do a walk down to the intake screen look at something and say, it doesn't look right, it doesn't sound right, or it doesn't smell right. You know, and that's that's hard to replace with technology. So I think a bit of both is prudent in terms of managing risk before it happens or in the process as it is happening. Um, and that was well said, Tim, because that's a huge part because a lot of these, as we said, these screens have taken on new responsibilities in the process whether it be they, they used to have three-eighths open and now they, they're fine screens. But one of the I'll always go back to one of the first fine screen installations we put in one time. We, we tried to prep the plant for the new changes. You know, you need to check this weekly. You need to check this monthly. And it was almost a two-year process before that plant finally bought in and said, oh, I see now what we're having to deal with. And so it, it, there's a learning curve on that plant. So it's uh, Tim's right. Well, now let's turn that to the uh, water intake system design strategy, right? Uh, whether a facility is installing a new water intake system or maybe they're retrofitting or upgrading an existing one, with all of these uh, disruptions in mind, are there any specific design features or technologies or integration workflows that you think end users should consider and prioritize to enhance system resiliency and help make that proactivity a little easier to actually act on? Yeah, I think there's two aspects to that. And, and I think if, 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 I, 
a plant needs to really take the automation very serious in, in this process and remove as much of the human factor out from, okay, well, let's cut these on when, or let's do this when. You can automate all that now. So it's, so it's very important with controls now. It's almost endless what you can uh, uh, have that piece of equipment do. And it's, and, it's, and it's proven to be very reliable. There's redundancy that you can build in to protect that. Um, and then there's always the, uh, the mechanical side that you, that you can look at maybe where now that with the, say for instance, the sargasm where there's a lot more grass. So you can beef the components up on the various types of screens to allow them to handle uh, higher differentials. Another a huge area is screen speeds is, is, is when the screen's not, since they run all the time now, when they're not busy, let's slow them down. Let's get more life out of the screen. But then when that grass hits, let's immediately go to a higher speed. And if that's not working, go to another speed. So it's there's there's a lot of things you can do, but you kind of can break them down between automation and mechanical and then tie those together. So, yeah, I, I agree. I don't have much to add there. You know, I think we, we take the advice of the industry expert that actually makes the screens. Uh, so I would agree you know, automation is a big piece, you know, to the extent that you can have a screen that maybe in some cases is controlling itself based on signals it receives, that, that would be seen as an advantage. You know, the flip side is always more technology means at some point someone would need to troubleshoot it. But I think things have been um, continually improved over the years to the point where you can have a program of a logic controller that's taking signals on water level differences to tell the screen how quickly to rotate or when to slow down. Because I think, uh, you know, Ford sort of hammered that one home as well. The, the lifetime of these screens has to be a consideration. And if there's a, an opportunity to reduce how frequently it has to be rotated, that equates to a longer life for the screen. So having some automation in there to tell you specifically rather than just using human judgment can be a, could, could be a good advance. Now for existing water intake systems, right? Ones that are already put in place and for the most part, uh, facilities operators plan on using that iteration of it in the short term. What are some best practices for managing the change in source water quality uh, and various conditions impacting said quality to minimize the chance of blockage from the start, right? What are some management strategies that you would recommend and why? For me, it's maintenance, 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 hmm. right? An intake screen is a, is a massive capital investment and to not maintain it would be akin to buying a brand new car and not putting oil in at the regularly scheduled intervals. So the vendors of the screens, the ones who make, make them, install them, and troubleshoot them know better than anyone else, you know, what's required to keep this thing operating well. So that's the point you always need to start at. You buy a new screen at an existing facility, and the vendor will tell you, based on this location and where we think your water quality is, we would recommend doing these 10 maintenance tasks on these bases. And if you don't keep up with that, you know, it's like it's like not taking your dentist's recommendation to brush your teeth every day. Who knows better than the folks who make, install, and operate these screens? Yeah, I, I would agree to that. One of the in, in a later question, that was one of the things that that I that I said if, that under under the new running conditions, you have to put in a robust maintenance system, and 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 that's not that's easier said than done because so many plants now have reduced personnel, 
And so, so they, they, they still should take that fact serious where they have to, to, to contract it locally or buy it from a source or whatever. They should, they should take that part very serious because if you, again, if you, if you, if you enjoy, it's just like your car. If you ignore changing the tires and you wait till you go to grandmother's house and it snows and you have a flat tire and you got to change it when it's 30 degrees, you'll remember that for the rest of your life. And, 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 and it's like a derated plant that costs millions and millions of dollars and a little a maintenance issue can, can snowball. So absolutely. I think, I think that's the, the biggest point is, is to maintain them and put that process in place um, from a, from an existing facility. Uh, you could look at if you've already got screens and you rebuild it, it really kind of goes back to the same as the first question. The same answers apply. You can upgrade the automation. You can upgrade the machine. So, I mean, it's it, it, the, the two kind of go hand in hand, too. And, and maybe one, one more thing to add, too, is it's rare. It's rare to be able to reconsider the design bases for a lot of these intakes. You know, oftentimes you think you're going to develop a design Put it out the bid. It's constructed. It lives forever until it's decommissioned. But if you're at the point where you're considering a retrofit of an intake system, maybe to comply with 316B, you have an opportunity to revisit things that may have changed. And are all your design assumptions still valid? Have water levels changed? You know, is the range in frequency of high water or low water different? Will that affect? Uh, pump performance downstream of the screens. Do you have more degree than you were expecting 30 years ago, such that you have to beef up the supports for a structure to withstand higher head loss across the screen? So I think it's it's an important piece. If you're at the point where you're considering a capital investment in terms of a retrofit, you might want to go back to the design basis and make sure that you're still comfortable with all the assumptions that were in there in the first place. And you mentioned this earlier too, but this isn't really a conversation around if it's going to happen, right? If there's going to be a problem, but more about understanding when and mitigating the effect of said disruptions, right? Because to some degree, that unpredictability is just baked into managing and running uh, water uh, intake operations. So I'm curious if y'all think that Facilities should have a robust contingency plan in case there are water intake system failures. What should those contingency plans look like, right? How holistic or in-depth do they need to be? And um, for if you could also intersect how Atlas SSI helps maneuver some of those challenges. Well, I mean, real quick, and I'd be interested to hear what TM has to say on that, but, but real quick, I think, you know, historically, there was a lot of redundancy built in the power plants. Um, they had uh, maybe multiple screens for one unit. So if one screen went down, okay, well, that's all right. There's not much of that redundancy left in this industry. but And so when a screen goes down, it's very critical. And, and that mindset, we, we still live a little bit in the past on that mindset to say, well, it's okay. We'll address it when it happens. And, and you can't do that. So um, I think I think it goes back to, to absolutely you got to have a contingency plan because that plant doesn't have water. It's not producing electricity, and um, and that gets very ugly very fast. And so um, maintenance um, is is paramount. And so that the contingency plan in terms of of once that that screen fails, sometimes. It's either derayed or, or or you pull water, dirty water through the plant. So I mean, it's 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 a 
it's a it's a difficult question, but yes, to the to should they have a contingency plan? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think the the two pieces I would break it into is there there's a proactive approach, and then there's a reactive approach. And, and though reactive always sounds passive, you got to have both, right? You got to be looking upstream to the extent that you can get days or, or weeks of advance notice when there might be an issue. That's great, but you also have to have plans in place in the form of an emergency management plan, a, a dedicated event response team, or a standard operating procedure for a specific event. Jellyfish are impinging on the screen and we rotate the screen faster. We've got this crew of four people. They had to come here with a fire hose at this pressure, rinse it off when that screen gets above the deck level. So having those contingency plans in place are, are critical while an event's happening. Even though it's a, a reactive sort of position, you've got a plan in place and you know who's responsible, who you call, where the equipment is, and how quickly you can respond. All right, Tim, Ford, that just about does it for our podcast today, but I've got one more question to just close things out, kind of playing off of our last one. But you know, I think it's safe to say that changing seawater conditions are going to be an ongoing situation and the factors that influence those unpredictable changes will stay unpredictable. There will be new ones, things kind of ebb and flow, uh, pun intended there, right? So what are some of the ways that facilities can stay up to date on the best practices for dealing with, mitigating, and reacting to these challenges? Is there a singular source you recommend folks reference often? Should they be building partnerships with other third-party companies to help walk them through those challenges and stay up to date? What are y'all's thoughts? So I'm going to defer that question 100% to Tim and just say, Tim, thank you for for participating today. I hope we do several of these because there's a lot of topics to talk about. It's fun and and I really do appreciate it. And uh, Mm -hmm. so uh, I'll defer that question to you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, thanks for having me for it. I appreciate it. So, you, you know, not not to sound too self-serving, but the, the work the work that we do um, with EPRI, um, which is I, I think it, it, it it's worth explaining that the Electric Power Research Institute is a it's a nonprofit research consortium that's generating research that's of of interest for sort of the common good. Eventually, all of that research in terms of the deliverables becomes publicly available after a certain amount of time. But there's really no better sort of clearinghouse for this type of information than those experts that are are present in organizations like EPRI. Uh, There are similar organizations like the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations, but they're more geared towards offering recommendations that people implement based on operating experience. So when it comes to the best location for identifying maybe what's the newest technology for helping to forecast an intake blockage event or what new technologies are out there in terms of screening equipment that might be experimental but have gone through a pilot test, EPRI is a great source for that information. Um, And and I'll make a final plug that there's there's a report we put together for EPRI called the Best Management Practices Manual for preventing cooling water intake blockages. And it's sort of a compendium of all the information that, that you might want to touch on, you know, different types of debris, how they've been managed successfully and unsuccessfully at plants, 
uh, new technologies that are appropriate for managing risk of intake blockages. Uh, what's newest in terms of forecasting technologies? Where have they been applied? And then there's a, a big chunk of that report is dedicated specifically to case studies for visits to plants in the United States, as well as a, a more international outlook for um, for issues that are really experienced globally. And I think on that note, then we'll go ahead and wrap up and leave listeners with those actionable strategies on how to build some partnerships, some analyses, and also some strategies for execution to stay up to date with uh, these various changes and also build out some workflows for resiliency and um, you know, quality reaction, right? When those issues do arise, how to maneuver them and how to make the most of the situation. So thank you again to our two guests for helping us understand the impacts of climate change on water intake systems, the impacts of various uh, unpredictable, I guess, uh, biological biofouling that give uh, water intake operators a constant headache. And it's been just real pleasure getting to pull from both of your insights to build out these analyses. So thanks again to Tim Hogan, principal and owner of TWB Environmental Research and Consulting. And also thank you to Ford Wall, vice president of sales at Atlas SSI. Tim, if folks want to find out more about TWB, some of the work y'all are doing, or maybe just get in touch, how can they do so? Uh, feel free to visit the website, which is twb-erc.com, uh, or, or look me up on LinkedIn. You know, I'm always happy to have a chat. Uh, no strings attached. All of this stuff is super interesting to me. You know, I, I really enjoyed my relationship with all the screen vendors as well. You know, there's no no better folks out there who know what the issues are than the folks that build the screens. So. I do appreciate, um, Ford, you guys bringing me into this conversation. So thanks again. Thank you. And Ford, thank you again for your time as well. It's really been a pleasure chatting. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks very much. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of The Intake, an Atlas SSI podcast. If you like what you heard and saw today and you want some previous episodes or you want to make sure you don't miss out on future conversations, make sure that you're subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify by just hitting that subscribe button for a full catalog of previous thought leadership episodes, plus notifications when we drop new episodes of the show. And make sure that you're heading to our website, atlas-ssi.com. Again, atlas-ssi.com. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of The Intake. <laughs>